It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. January 1951. 23-year-old Junius Kellogg sat in his dorm room, conflicted. The 6'8 Star Center for the Manhattan Jaspers sat across from his former teammates, Hank Poppy and Jack Byrne. They wanted to know if Junius would be willing to shave points in an upcoming game against DePaul. And they would pay him $1,000 cash practically a fortune. But he told Poppy and Byrne that he needed some time to think about it. The boys were more than happy to oblige him. A week later, Poppy approached Junius for his answer. With a long sigh, Junius said yes. Poppy could see this was tough for him. He reassured Junius that he wasn't alone. College basketball players were fixing games and being paid for it all over the U.S. Junius was just one of many. Hank Poppy wasn't wrong. Kids all across America were, in fact, taking bribes to fix games, a dark truth that would soon be revealed. And bring college basketball to its knees. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on the CCNY point-shaving scandal of 1951, one of the largest point-shaving scandals to ever rock the sports world. Last week, we explored CCNY's 1949-1950 Cinderella season. After 30 years of struggling to win a championship, the Beavers became the first team in college basketball to win both the NIT and NCAA tournaments in the same season. But behind the scenes, some of the boys fixed games for a local bookie. This week, we explore the following 1950-1951 season when more members of the squad agreed to shave points for money. And when it all came crashing down, the point-shaving scandal stretched across America. In the summer of 1950, 20-year-old CCNY Beaver Eddie Roman followed the tradition of most New York college boys and got a job working in a Catskills hotel. The Catskills, a three-hour drive north of Manhattan, had become a popular vacation spot for New York's Jewish population. Making some extra cash there over the summers was the norm. Working alongside Roman was teammate Alvin Fats Roth, and at another hotel in the area, Ed Warner, a Harlem native and basketball savant, took a job bussing tables and cleaning dishes. 
As we mentioned last week, each hotel formed their own exhibition basketball team during the summer. Every Friday and Saturday, these teams would face off in friendly tournaments. For the kids, it was a great way to keep fresh before the season started in the fall. But for the vacationers, it was a wildly popular way to gamble. In no time at all, some of the seedier patrons began fixing games, paying athletes to shave off points. One of those vacationing gamblers was 45-year-old Salvatore Salazzo. Salazzo was a jewelry manufacturer with a checkered past. After bankrupting his family's jewelry store, he got caught for armed robbery and spent five years in Sing Sing prison. After prison, he went back into the jewelry business and found success. With extra money to throw around, he began placing bets on sports. Before too long, Salazzo was a full-blown gambling addict. But Salazzo wasn't very good at gambling. As author Matthew Goodman noted in his book, The City Game, Salazzo was, quote, especially inept. The hunches he was so sure about never seemed to work out, and yet he couldn't give up the pursuit. This carried over into the summer of 1950 while vacationing in the Catskills and gambling on the exhibition basketball games. At one point, Salazzo came into contact with a former player named Eddie Gard, and recruited him into a large-scale point-shaving scheme. 23-year-old Eddie Gard was no stranger to fixing games. While attending Long Island University, Gard shaved points like it was nothing. Beginning in 1947, he spent roughly three seasons taking bribes to make sure that his team came in under the spread. Gard was a natural when it came to convincing players to fix games for him. Blessed with the gift of gab, he could sweet-talk anyone. And if an athlete was being stubborn, he made sure to show them what $1,000 looked like in person. Salazzo used a similar tactic when trying to get Guard to work with him. For weeks, the fixer whined and dined the kid. In truth, though, it didn't take much to convince Guard to join the scheme. Guard was already planning on expanding his operations beyond Long Island. He wanted to be a kingpin. All he needed was a bankroll, and Salazzo fit the bill. With the partnership solidified, it was time to recruit players into their scheme. As the summer came to a close, Guard shifted his eyes towards a couple of recent NIT and NCAA champions, Fats Roth and Eddie Roman. Guard approached Roth first. He never had any problems with shaving points. After all, he was one of the first guys Norm Mauger approached the season before. So when Guard mentioned the idea of doing it again for the upcoming season, Roth was interested. However, he was nervous about working with Salazzo. He found Salazzo unnerving, a hint of danger all about him. In The City Game, Roth recalled how, just looking at Salazzo scared me. But the prospect of a good payday ultimately won Roth over. He was always worried about money. It made him an easy target for guard. Roth knew, though, that Eddie Roman might be harder to crack. Though Roman was involved in shaving points in the previous season, he always had regrets about it. And he even put an end to it midway through the season. But Roth promised Guard and Salazzo that he would get Roman on board. He wasn't going to let the star center turn down another opportunity. To Roth's surprise, Roman wasn't as against point shaving this time around. Last season, he and the Beavers went on to win two major tournaments with a few fixed games. He realized that perhaps there was no harm in shaving points here and there. Better yet, he knew that if he didn't want to do it for any reason, he could simply say no, not today. 
The one hitch, though, was that Roman wasn't going to do it unless they got Ed Warner involved. There are conflicting reasons as to why Roman was so hell-bent on getting Warner in on the scheme. Roman claimed he didn't want Warner to get suspicious as to why the others weren't giving him the ball. It's also possible that Roman was trying to avoid the guilt that overcame him last season when Warner and Floyd Lane gave it their all while he missed easy shots left and right. Whatever the real reason, if Warner could be convinced, then Roman was in. Ed Warner did take some sweet talking, but ultimately agreed to guard's pitch. Growing up in Harlem, Warner was used to seeing bookies and gamblers on the streets. He was fairly immune to the whole prospect. Plus, the idea of finally having cash in his pocket was enough for him to say yes. As Warner put it himself, I was poor, and I wanted my piece of the action. That only left Floyd Lane. Lane was always going to be the toughest nut to crack because he was straight edge. He was a literal Boy Scout. Roman, in fact, didn't even want to approach Lane about fixing games for fear that he would turn them in. Warner, on the other hand, believed that as the only other black man on the starting five, he had the ability to sway Lane. In October, a month before the season, Warner finally approached Lane about shaving points for money. To no one's surprise, Lane said to take a hike. But Warner wasn't going to let up. For over a month, he worked on his teammate, and the more Lane thought about it, the more he realized the money could be used to help his single mother out in Harlem. Ironically, by the time the season started on November 25th, the only person not entirely on board was Eddie Roman. Whether it was because he didn't trust Guard and Salazzo, or he just had lingering reservations, no one knew if he was actually in or not. Roth, Warner, and Lane got something of an answer when the Beavers started their season with two blowout wins against St. Francis College in Queens. Roman had said nothing about shaving the points and showed fans that he was still one of the best players in New York. But for Eddie Gard, who wanted to cash in, Roman's lack of commitment became increasingly infuriating. He told Roth that he wanted to have a sit-down with Roman before the season got away from him. On December 5th, the Beavers barely etched out a victory over BYU, 71-69, a game they played straight. After the game, Roman, Roth, and Guard drove to Salazzo's apartment at the Majestic on Central Park West. It was time for Roman to make a final decision. The meeting was short and to the point. Most of what Roman heard from Salazzo, he had already heard from Guard and Roth. CCNY didn't have to lose. They just had to come in under the spread. Instead of giving 100%, give about 90%. But what seemed to push Roman to a yes was that Salazzo was willing to pay $1,500 per game, worth about $16,000 today. Roman knew that he would be stupid to turn down that kind of dough. And by the time the meeting ended, he was officially in. All four boys were now a go, and the first game they were set to fix was against Missouri on December 9, 1950. The Mizzou game was a complete and utter disaster. The Missouri Tigers were by no means an elite team, but that December night, one would have thought they were the Kentucky Wildcats with how bad CCNY played. The Beavers were sluggish from the get-go. Gone was the jazz ballet that gave them two tournament titles. 
none of the boys were on the same page, and the passes were either overthrown or easily stolen. Worse yet, they committed foul after foul. When the game ended, the Tigers shocked the Beavers 54-37. It was one of the worst losses in recent CCNY history. The only upside was that the boys would now have $1,500 in their pockets. A few days later, Ed Warner and Floyd Lane met with Guard to pick up their hard-earned cash. Both men marveled at holding that much money for the first time. It was a beautiful sign of things to come. When Lane got home, he wrapped the money in a handkerchief and buried it in a flower pot. Meanwhile, Roman and Roth were having trouble getting paid themselves. There was a rumor going around that they were working for someone else. Insulted, the two demanded a meeting with Salazzo so they could get what they were owed. On a cold December night, the two met with Salazzo and assured him that they were working with him and only him. Salazzo could hear the sincerity in their voices and believe them. But there was a problem. He didn't have the money. Prior to the game, word spread like wildfire that Missouri was a lock to cover the spread. Panic among the bookies about a possible fix forced them to stop taking bets, and Salazzo didn't get his bet in before the bookies shut it down. But he offered to make them a deal. CCNY was favored to win their next game against Washington State by 10. Not only was Salazzo going to pay the $3,000 he owed Roman and Roth, but he was also willing to pay another $250 to each of the four if the Beavers beat the spread. Roman and Roth knew that $250 was a far cry from the initially agreed upon $1,500 per game. Salazzo decided to take the deal one step further. He would take their $250 and bet it for them. Roman and Roth agreed to the new deal. The December 14th game against WSU was night and day different from the Missouri mess. From the moment the referee tipped the ball off, the Beavers were in control. The wild passing and over-the-top shooting were gone. Back was the Jazz Ballet. The Beavers took a 10-point lead and never relinquished it. By the time the buzzer sounded, the final score was 59-43. to Roman and Roth knew that the $250 they had bet on themselves had just doubled. Between that and what they were already owed, Roman and Roth were looking at a $2,000 payday. But the happiness the boys felt with a wad of cold, hard cash in their hand would soon disappear. By the end of December, the Beavers were hit with a rash of injuries. Warner sprained his ankle, and Roman suffered an infection on a cut toe. The boys took these injuries as a sign to be more careful as to which games to fix. Without Roman and Warner on the court, Roth and Lane wouldn't be able to control the fixed games without being too obvious. But what none of them realized was these injuries were a more ominous sign. The point-shaving scheme was nearing its end. Coming up, Junius Kellogg unveils the largest point-shaving scandal in sports history. Now, back to the story. At the end of 1950, players for the CCNY Beavers had agreed to start shaving points for a jewel manufacturer, Salvatore Salazzo. The first couple of games ultimately worked in the boys' favor. All four were making a nice chunk of change. 
But as the holidays came, a string of injuries forced the boys to become a little more choosy with which games they fixed. After saying no to the Christmas Day game against Brooklyn, the boys agreed to shave points against Arizona. Much like the Missouri game, the battle against Arizona was a total disaster. Though the boys earned their pay, the team's effort was abysmal. Ed Warner, battered and bruised, only played for two minutes. And Eddie Roman's infected foot made it impossible for him to make jump shots. The final score was 41-38 Arizona. The loss put doubts in the fans' minds during the lead-up to the annual St. John's game, one of the biggest for CCNY during the regular season. The Beavers opened as nine-point underdogs, the first time they weren't favored all season. Miraculously, they only lost by three. St. John's 47, CCNY 44. The real winners that night were the few who had bet that CCNY would cover. The near win against St. John's highlighted how CCNY wasn't very good at fixing games. Though they were hampered with injuries that gave them some cover to what they were doing, the team overall seemed to completely forget how to play ball during a rigged match. Unlike other Metropolitan teams, like Eddie Gard's LIU, the Beavers never seemed to figure out how to lose without looking suspicious. How was it possible that they could hold their own against a worthy competitor like St. John's, but get stomped by middling Arizona? No game made that clearer than the following against Boston College, when the Beavers inexplicably lost 63-59. to In the final minutes of the game, CCNY was comfortably ahead. But then the team forgot how to play defense, and the BC Eagles scored a commanding nine points to take the lead. The Boston College loss proved that trouble was just around the corner. Not only did people question that something wasn't right with the Beavers, but there were whispers that Madison Square Garden in general was full of rigged games. Many bookmakers started refusing to accept bets for games played there. This, in effect, hurt compulsive gamblers like Salazzo. And if he wasn't able to bet on the games, he wasn't able to pay the players. A few nights after the BC game, Roman, Roth, and Lane met with Eddie Gard to receive $5,000. $1,500 for the three of them and $500 for the ailing Warner. Instead, Gard only showed up with $1,400 total. He relayed the message about the missed bets and that Salazzo was going to repay them. But what the boys didn't know was that Salazzo was in more trouble than just missing the one bet. He was $75,000 in debt to the bookies, the equivalent of $740,000 today. According to The City Game, Salazzo had wagered $30,000 on Duquesne to cover the spread against Long Island University. Unfortunately for Salazzo, an anonymous letter to the LIU coach accused the players of fixing games. To avoid getting caught, the LIU players decided to play the Duquesne game straight. The decision came minutes before tip-off. The result was an LIU massacre, 84-52. Salazzo was now desperate to make a big payout. He needed cash quick. But when it came to using the CCNY boys, he would have to wait. Because CCNY was on a midwinter break. Roman and Roth were back in the Catskills with their families. It was during this vacation that they heard the news that would shatter college basketball forever. On January 16, 1951, 
Manhattan College alums Hank Poppy and Jack Byrne, along with three bookies, were arrested on charges of bribery. In early January, Hank Poppy and Jack Byrne approached Junius Kellogg about fixing a game against DePaul. Kellogg told his former teammates that he would think about it, but the moment Poppy and Byrne left Kellogg's room, Kellogg went to his coach and told him what happened. Kellogg feared that simply knowing about the scheme could put his scholarship in jeopardy, and he didn't want to risk it. After reporting the bribe to his coach, Kellogg agreed to go undercover for law enforcement. A few days later, while wearing a hidden wire, Kellogg told Poppy that he would shave points for $1,000. On January 16th, the Manhattan College Jaspers faced off against the DePaul Blue Demons. Even though he wasn't actually fixing the game, Junius Kellogg struggled the whole night, distracted by the whole affair. Manhattan won 63-59, and after the game, Kellogg waited outside of the garden for Poppy to receive his money. But Poppy never showed. This was because he and the four others involved had been arrested. The next morning, news of the bribery was on the front page of all the newspapers. The media sensation was unlike anything anyone had ever seen when it came to sports. While many in the Big Apple gambled themselves, the average citizen didn't actually think that players would be in on the take. Outrage followed disbelief. People were angry that naked greed would influence the purity of the game. Max Case of the Journal American labeled the players who took bribes as Judases. Never mind the fact, of course, that thousands of New Yorkers were making money off the backs of these unpaid athletes. Meanwhile, in the Catskills, Roman and Roth breathed a slight sigh of relief reading the newspaper. As far as they could tell, there wasn't any link between them and those arrested. Though they were familiar with the names of Kellogg, Poppy, and Byrne, the bookies were complete strangers. But more headlines in the days that followed revealed that other schools were implicated in point shaving. For a brief second, both men considered turning themselves in, confessing their sins to the police. Instead, they decided to keep their mouth shut for fear of facing their families. When they returned to New York, the four boys all agreed to put point shaving behind them. It didn't matter how much Lotso or Guard were offering, they would say no. The heat surrounding the Kellogg revelation was too much. It was time to turn the CCNY ship around before it was too late, and they missed a chance at defending their NIT and NCAA titles. January 30th, 1951, was the beginning of an 11-day road series throughout the Midwest and East Coast, playing in cities like Boston, Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland. The boys were more than happy to be out of New York and away from the media circus surrounding the point shaving. During that nearly two-week road trip, CCNY made up some of the ground they lost during the point-shaving losses. They won every game and returned home 10-5 and on the season. More importantly, though, the team had a legitimate chance of making it to both the NIT and NCAA tournaments. They may have been given a high seed, but at least it was a shot at defending their titles. But, unbeknownst to the boys, investigators had uncovered a major person of interest in the fixing of games, a name that would tie Roman, Warner, Roth, and Lane directly to the burgeoning scandal. Eddie Gard. 
It really didn't take much effort to discover Gard's involvement in the whole operation. And as investigators dug, it became clear that Gard wasn't the brightest bulb when it came to covering his tracks. After catching wind as to who Gard was, law enforcement moved to surveil him 24-7. They established tales and bugged his phone. Listening into Gard's phone calls essentially laid out the entire scheme for the police. Gard loved to use coded language. Unfortunately, his codes were easily broken. Sally was the name for Salazzo. The Uptown Girls were the CCNY Beavers. Nosy's friend was Roth. And Roman was the girl with the big nose. Law enforcement compiled a list of phone numbers that Gard made calls to. Many of these numbers belonged to the parents of players who went to LIU or St. John's. But one number on their list was for an apartment in the Bronx. Julius Roman, Eddie Roman's father. Why was Julius Roman talking with Eddie Gard? Or, as police realized, was his son using the family phone to conduct business? Going into February, Eddie Roman was now a person of interest. By mid-February, Roman and the others were on a high. They had put an end to fixing games and reclaimed some ground for the team in the standings. After the road trip, CCNY came back to New York and suffered a few hard-fought losses to Fordham and Canisius. But there were still two games left in the regular season. Showing up when necessary and become a CCNY specialty, their first opponent, the Temple Owls. On February 17, 1951, the CCNY Beavers traveled down to Philadelphia and played their hearts out. From the moment the ball was tipped, the Beavers took control of the game and never looked back. Though the Owls weren't scrubs themselves, they even had the country's leading scorer, the pace that the Beavers set was too much. CCNY's trademark jazz ballet confused and frustrated the Owls to no end. The Beaver beatdown was so bad that coach Nat Holman mercifully benched the starting five midway through the second half. For the last 10 minutes of the game, only the reserves played. Roman ended the night with 25 points alone. The final score was 95 to 71, the highest scoring game of the season for CCNY. And as the boys made their way to the locker room, the team was confident that any day now they would get the call that they were in the NIT. The CCNY Beavers took the 11.26 p.m. train from Philadelphia to New York. As the train passed through New Brunswick, New Jersey, and over the Raritan River, Coach Holman was approached by a short man in a trench coat. Without causing a scene, the trench coat man quietly entered Holman's private cabin and revealed that he was a detective for the Manhattan DA's office. Holman listened in silence as the detective revealed that he was carrying arrest warrants, and they were for four of his players. Coming up, the full scope of the 1951 point-shaving scandal comes to light. Now, back to the story. On February 17, 1951, the CCNY Beavers trounced the Temple Owls 95-71. In an all-important victory, the Beavers left Philadelphia on a high. The season hadn't gone as expected, but the road was paved for a chance to defend their two history-making titles at the NIT and NCAA tournaments. But on the train ride back to the city, Coach Nat Holman had received some startling news. 
two detectives with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office were on board to arrest four of Holman's players. There's wide speculation about whether or not Holman was being truthful when he said he was in shock at the news that four of his players were shaving points. The fact was, point shaving was a nasty rumor in every locker room. No matter how much a coach discouraged the act, no one was ever sure if the players fell for the temptation. These kids were, after all, human. Money is hard to turn down, especially when you aren't making any. Holman agreed that the detectives should arrest the four privately. Making a scene wouldn't be good for anyone. So when the train neared Penn Station, Holman got up and approached Eddie Roman, Al Roth, Ed Warner, and Ron Nadell, a barely used reserve player. He told them to hang back when the rest of the team got off. Floyd Lane watched in complete amazement that he was not one of the boys told to stay behind. But he also knew that he needed to keep his mouth shut, so he did. In the early hours of February 18, 1951, Holman told the four that a couple of detectives were going to take them downtown. He said, go with them, go without fears, tell them everything they want to know. If your consciences are clear, you're all right and cannot get into trouble. If not, I'm very sorry for you. They were the last words Holman ever spoke to Eddie Roman. And just like in the movies, Holman turned around and walked into the darkness of the train platform. Roman, Warner, and Roth felt a bit of relief when Ron Nadell was arrested with them. Nadell had absolutely no involvement in the point-shaving scheme because he barely played five minutes a game. In Roth's eyes, the cops didn't have anything on them. The whole arrest was a ploy to pump them for information. When they got to the police station, the four boys were separated into individual interrogation rooms. Oddly enough, none of them had legal counsel. Holman had promised to arrange for it, but for some inexplicable reason, he didn't. In fact, Holman did nothing once he got home. Assistant coach Bobby Sand was the one who ultimately called the boys' parents. In the small interrogation room, packed with detectives and DAs, Roman was asked about fixing games. Most of the questions started off innocent enough, dancing around the subject. At one point, the cops told Roman that his teammates had already confessed. As the minutes ticked by, it became clear to Roman that the cops didn't have as concrete of information as they insinuated. The questions weren't specific enough and had a fishing way about them. Roman began to feel a little less nervous. But that reassuring feeling went out the window when the police played a recording. It was Roman talking to another kid, Eddie Gard. The cherry on top, however, came right after the tape was played. One of the detectives signaled for the door to open, and in walked Gard himself, teary-eyed and exhausted-looking. Gard confirmed in front of Roman and the cops that he had paid Roman $1,500 to shave points on some games during the season. Roman couldn't believe what was happening. When Gard was ushered out, Roman began to talk. It was 5 a.m. Roman was actually the third one to confess that night. After Eddie Gard, Fats Roth told the cops everything, and after Roman confessed, it didn't take long for Warner to divulge as well. When it came time to question Nadell, the reserve, it was obvious that he knew nothing and was quickly released. 
Had the boys been given an attorney, it's quite possible they wouldn't have confessed that day, or at all. What seems to have gotten them to spill was the wiretapped recordings that were played, a legal gray area at the time. 20 years earlier, in 1934, Congress passed the Federal Communication Act, which stipulated parameters when it came to wiretapping. Wiretaps could still be used to gather information, but disclosing the information found on them was illegal. Law enforcement was allowed to use wiretaps as a way to gather more evidence, but couldn't use the recordings as evidence. And in the case of the CCNY Beavers, playing the tapes in front of the scared 20-somethings incited them to reveal everything to the cops. Now the wiretaps weren't needed once the case went to court. But if they'd had an attorney present, they likely would have advised the boys that the tapes would never see the light of day. Instead, they thought their fate was already sealed. In the days that followed, the scandal hit the headlines to the shock of the average New Yorker. Outrage spread throughout the city as, little by little, the full extent of the scheme came to light. The night Roman, Warner, Roth, and Guard were arrested, Salazzo, a player from NYU, and another gambler were arrested too. And in the days that followed, more players and gamblers found themselves in the back of a squad car. The money, naturally, was also given over to the police as evidence. Within a week, the police had recovered over $20,000 in bribe payouts, including cash from Roman, Roth, and Warner. People couldn't believe how much these kids were being paid to cheat. One player knew it was only a matter of time before the law caught up to him, Floyd Lane. The Tuesday after the big arrests, Floyd Lane attended one of the final pep rallies of the season. It was during this rally when Coach Holman announced that Lane was now co-captain of the team. To add to the poetic irony, Ron Nadell, the little-used reserve who was arrested at Penn Station, was the other new co-captain. Lane was hailed by everyone for his honesty. He, unlike his teammates, was able to resist the temptation of the dollar and play with integrity. As Matthew Goodman put it in his book, The City Game, he had grown into something more, not just a basketball player, but a genuine hero. On Thursday, February 22nd, Lane led the Beavers to a 67-48 victory against Lafayette. He scored 19 points, one of the best games of his college career. But as he was being carried out by the student body off the court like a warrior coming from battle, inside, Lane felt nothing. Any day now, the jig would be up and everyone would know he wasn't the hero they thought he was. The following week, Lane was walking out of class when a teacher pulled him aside. He informed Lane that some men needed to see him. Lane knew right away that the time had come. On February 27, 1951, Lane met with detectives and confessed to his part in the point-shaving scheme. Afterward, they went to his mother's home in the Bronx and retrieved the money hidden in the flower pot. The only money unaccounted for was the $110 used to buy his mother a washing machine for Christmas. But Lane was happy to be rid of the nearly $3,000. The weight of the world was no longer on his shoulders. Floyd Lane was the 13th person arrested in connection to the 1951 point shaving scandal. But by the time the dust settled, 32 players from seven different schools were linked to the scheme, including the vaunted Kentucky Wildcats. Since 1947, over 80 games had been fixed. 
Fans soon discovered that the historic 1949-1950 Beaver season was among these fixed games. Norm Mauger and Erwin Dambrot's roles were revealed to the world, and they too were arrested. And even though all of the players swore that the NIT and NCAA games were clean, many knew that the season would forever be tainted. But players weren't the only ones who saw themselves slapped with cuffs. Various bookies and gamblers were arrested for bribery. One of those men was none other than Eli Kay, the man who bribed the boys during the 1949-1950 season. Kay's real name was Eli Klokowski, and it turned out that he had some unsavory ties to New York's criminal organizations. Klukowski, however, would never see time behind bars. He died of a heart attack before he could face trial. In November 1951, sentences were finally handed out to those involved in the scandal. Judge Strait was lenient on some players, depending on their level of cooperation. As for the gamblers and the fixers, he made sure they spent time locked away. Salvatore Salazzo, the worst of the fixers, was sentenced to 8 to 16 years in state prison. Ultimately, he served 12. Eddie Gard, the kid who wrangled the players for Salazzo, cooperated with the police and found some leniency. He received a sentence of up to three years. Norm Mauger, Floyd Lane, Erwin Dambrot, and Ed Roman all received suspended sentences for cooperating. Fats Roth was initially sentenced to six months, but his time was suspended when he agreed to serve in the army. Of the CCNY boys, only Ed Warner spent time in prison. He was taken to Rikers Island and spent six months locked away. When asked why Warner's sentence wasn't suspended like his teammates, especially given that he fixed fewer games than either Roman or Roth, Judge Strait claimed that it was because Warner was arrogant and resistive to efforts to interview him, that he was untruthful and evasive. It isn't hard to imagine that race may have played a role in Strait's decision. After all, another prominent athlete who served time behind bars for his role in the scandal, Sherman White, was also black. That being said, Floyd Lane, another black point shaver, didn't serve time. It's possible that since Warner and White were two of the more high-profile athletes involved, Strait wanted to make an example of them. Those seven schools were involved in the sting because four of the players charged were members of the historic 1949-1950 team, CCNY would bear the name of the entire affair. The 1951 CCNY point-shaving scandal nearly brought college basketball to its knees. To put the impact of the scandal into perspective, one person claimed that the next time he felt that same sense of betrayal was when John F. Kennedy was assassinated 10 years later. Ultimately, though, college basketball did survive. Today, the NCAA tournament, which has completely usurped the relevance of the NIT, is a ratings juggernaut. Every March, millions of fans and non-fans gather together and partake in a new gambling ritual, the bracket. But the scandal wasn't without its long-term consequences. Of the four major New York schools, Long Island University and CCNY were hit the hardest. CCNY was forbidden from playing in Madison Square Garden and eventually dropped from Division I to Division III. Never again would they reach the prominence they did in the post-war years. The dream that was the Harvard of the proletariat was shattered. 
Many had believed that CCNY's victory on the basketball court was the exclamation point to the belief of American ideals for those who immigrated to the U.S. Through hard work and honesty, an immigrant could make it in this new place they called home. Though it seems absurd now, in the 1950s, the actions of Eddie Roman, Ed Warner, Al Roth, Floyd Lane, Norm Mauger, and Erwin Dambrot made the average citizen question that belief and helped nearly put an end to an entire sport. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with another new episode. For more information on the CCNY scandal, among the many sources we used, we found The City Game by Matthew Goodman to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. And not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Joe Guerra with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 